Hey everybody, I just thought I'd take a moment to say a few words before this very special classic industry standard episode with the late Kevin Rooney. And I just want to let you know that Kevin was a really, really special person to all of us that uh, knew him in this crazy business. He worked with the best, he hung with the best, and his sense of humor and perspective on the world was the best. And his passing recently was very, 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 very sad. But the way he hung with the comedians and the way he was able to navigate every situation made him one of the most extraordinary people in our business. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Three-dimensional, actual, fully formed people are less memorable on the first time you meet them than a cartoon who comes out and blows up. You know, I got my funny glasses on, I got my funny suit, I'm screaming. That sticks into a person's head, you know, audience member's head. And so they, I think they can get traction faster. And that, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Traction. All these people today on Facebook and Twitter trying to, Instagram, it's all about trying to get traction with an audience and getting some kind of recognition and be memorable. So some people come out with memorable material and other people come out with a firecracker in their ass. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. So glad to have you here today. We got a great show for you with inspirational writer, actor, and comedian Kevin Rooney. As always, if you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz on Instagram or Twitter, and I'd be glad to get back to you. And now let me introduce my guest without further ado. Kevin Rooney is an Emmy Award-winning writer, actor, and comedian known for the show's My Wife and Kids. Dennis Miller Live, The Jay Leno Show, Real Time with Bill Maher, The Tonight Show, and countless sitcoms on Fox, ABC, and NBC. Kevin's early life was difficult as his father lost his education money in the stock market, and he had to work putting tar on roads and as a janitor in an elementary school, living in a room his dad built in the back of their barn. 
He then became a bartender and was encouraged to attend an open mic night in Washington, D.C., where he did really well, and then became a door guy at the New York City Improv in the 70s. He first started writing jokes for Jay Leno, and then began writing for sitcoms starting with The Golden Palace and moving on to The Naked Truth, My Wife and Kids, Till Death, Politically Incorrect, The Dennis Miller Show, Dennis Miller Live, Jay Leno and the American Dream, as well as acting in the movie When Harry Met Sally with Billy Crystal. He had an overall deal with Castle Rock while Seinfeld was the number one show on the air, won two Emmy Awards with Politically Incorrect, was a war veteran, and suffered a stroke a few years ago, which hasn't stopped him one bit. But probably he's best known for his extraordinary work with Dennis Miller to develop, write, and create the comedy rants, which influenced a generation of comedians and a worldwide audience. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. What an honor, Kevin Rooney. Thank you, Barry. Thank you so much. Okay, that's calm down, everybody. <laughs> Kev, I have so many things I want to ask you, but okay. the first thing I want to ask you is this. I always think to myself how difficult it is to make a decision as an artist when you're doing something to make the switch to something else. In the beginning, you obviously were doing a lot of jobs that were not great and then you made the transition to comedy. And then you were in comedy, and then you made the transition to writing. Right. But then you were in writing, and you made the transition to stop comedy. Yeah. And then you're writing, and I you like made the you transition. I like you call transition. Interesting word for failure. <laughs> <laughs> I've been transitioning all my life. From one failed job to the next until I got myself here at a nice table with you in the Hollywood Hills, in my shrubbery. How do you live in a house like this with more skylights than I have rooms in my house <laughs> and a table here that's been carved from an oak out of the Redwood National Forest? It's a Thai, it's a, it's a Thai acacia tree and it's on the stump, you see down there? I see it. Got six little guys brought this up here. Six Aztecs brought this up here and put it together for us. I thought six little people brought it up. Well, small guys, but they're super powerful. They look like little, one of those little stone chess pieces come to life. <laughs> they brought this thing up here and uh, screwed it together. And It's a nice table to sit around. I always liked having a big round table that could accommodate eight or ten people, you know? I love this house. Then I had to get eight or ten friends. That was the hard part. The table I got... <laughs> For people listening, the transition that you call failure, <laughs> but to move from one profession to the next with no net. Right. How do you do that? And how does it not get inside you and bother you that you're moving from one thing to the next and sort of like pushing something to the side? Like stand up. Right. I must have seen you on The Tonight Show. I mean, I don't even know how many times. There was a set that you did on there. There wasn't even a point where you could say, ah, that... That there's an extra word there or this is a tag that he right. shouldn't have put there you're at the top of your game and you say right. fuck it I'm gonna write well uh, I thought I was kind of at the top of my game at some point but I was not getting the next thing I wasn't getting a HBO special this was before we were talking about 1986 or so when there was not a plethora of specials being handed out 
there was no Netflix and all that stuff. So you had to get a special from HBO. I wasn't getting it. So I couldn't get to the next who, step. Who were the artists that were getting? Because HBO would do three specials a year with right. three different artists. At that time in like 84 to 88 area where you wanted to get that, right. who were the three people getting it each year? Well, I've had a stroke about five years ago, so I've forgotten them all. Bill Maher was one. Bill Maher was one. But he was the other. Basically, he filled the white guy telling political jokes slot. So I couldn't get it. And he was managed by Brillstein Gray, which did the HBO specials, really. So I was kind of blocked there, and I wasn't going to get one. I can't remember the other people, but it was kind of a... Uh, there were specials, there were, the, like you said, there were a few, and they kind of didn't want to have the same people or the same kind of people doing all of them. So once Bill filled that slot, I couldn't get it. And I thought, I'm not going to get one. And I got an offer to work uh, writing with uh, Jay Leno doing something, and so I took it because I was a friend with Jay and it was fun to do. So I didn't uh, really plan a shift or a transition. I just was kind of the door shut for me, I thought, and stand up. And I said, rather than bang my head against the wall for another decade trying to be a stand-up comic or make it as a stand-up comic, I took what the, I took what the town offered me. You know what I mean? Hollywood. And for the audience who doesn't know, back then even, the minimum wage for a writer writing for that kind of a show could have been around $3,000 a week. Right. Now it's probably around 4400 or 4800 or something like that. Yeah, something like that. So the money was better in writing. And uh, I was tired of traveling around the country uh, all the time. Uh testing different markets everywhere and always always away from home so when the writing uh offered itself dennis miller you know he i was friends with him too he uh asked me to write on a show so i took that so whenever the writing jobs came up i took them as an alternative just to being on the road and making less money you know i never planned it i never planned to transition or really i just thought I'm a little bit stopped here. I'll go over here. It was really, I was really just like water, you know, seeking my level. I was just, I was just flowing downhill. I mean, you didn't go on that show as just a writer. I mean, you were at the highest level of producing on a show when you hadn't really done that before. Right. That was Dennis's big mistake. <laughs> I mean, he, I believe he gave you an executive producer credit in the beginning with Jeff Cesario, right? Well, the first one was the Tribune show, which was a week, which was a five nights a week show. Dennis Miller, and then the Dennis Miller live show was the HBO one, with, and then Jeff Cesario did it after I left. He was the executive producer after I left. The first time we did that show on HBO, the first season of it, he gave me the credit, uh, whatever I want to be called. It was the credit he gave me. Kevin Rooney, whatever he wants to be called. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I enjoyed doing that show, and it, I wasn't the executive producer of it, it was just a, a head writer. I say just, but that's what I was doing. And uh, that was a great, fun show to and do. We had really good your, staff. Who was, your, who was your writing staff? Of, well, the uh, staff people. was great. Was Ed Driscoll there? Ed Driscoll was there, yes. And uh, Very talented, hilarious. funny, unique He was a guy. very quirky guy with a great sense of humor. And uh, Drake Sather. Of course, the late Drake Sather. Well, that was not the HBO show. That was the Tribune show. Drake Sather. Uh, Barry Crimmins came in for a while. Norm MacDonald. John Regi. Uh, uh, the guys who created Will and Grace, Max Munchtick and Dave Cohen were there, Mick Bakai, and uh, Mark Brazil, and John Regi. 
So all those guys are doing very well now. And, you know, Mark created that 70s show. Like and, the 1927 Yankees. Right. It was a great show. It was like the show of shows. It was fun to be on there with those guys and really a lot of fun. So when that show ended, we were all sad about it. But, uh, but what's odd is that you were the head writer and right. some of those guys that you mentioned mm-hmm. at the time had more experience than you. How did you handle that? Well, I was bigger than most of them. So <laughs> physically, <laughs> physically, yep. And I didn't. Uh, that didn't. But never. That never occurred to me that any of them had more experience. We, I knew them all as stand-ups, most of them. So they were not uh, guys that I was that I felt uh, in the shadow of or anything like that. So we just plowed ahead every day and wrote jokes. Would you mind telling the audience the job of a head writer? on a show like the Dennis Miller show and you have your group of staff writing. Right. What is it from the start of the day till the end of the day that you're doing differently that they aren't doing? Uh, not much really because uh, we were all get together in the morning, talk about the uh, events of the day or the week or whatever happening and pick topics and then go write jokes. And then we had, we developed, you know, monologue jokes. We developed set pieces that we would do you know without Dennis without Dennis yeah almost always without Dennis <laughs> he was kind of a little lazy he didn't come in much I got a picture actually of uh, the whole writing staff in Dennis's parking space because his car wasn't there <laughs> and um, we would get together and pick, like, we, uh, we're sitting around one day and the producer came in Ken Ehrlich and he had a, had a new toupee and it was a big big toupee it looked like a cat died on his head there and and I was saying, does he really think we don't notice that? So we ought to have, they ought to, he was short too. I said, we ought to get a, a thing called the Stilt Club for men. And every week we send you, <laughs> every week we send you a new set of stilts. It's a little bit bigger. People don't notice that you're all of a sudden you go from three, five, three foot five to eight feet tall. <laughs> and everybody, you know, the, the, the staff was all laughing. And then uh, John Reggie asked me if he could write that up. And I said, yeah, so we had that bit. So the Stilt Club for Men bit came out of it. We had a, a commercial parody we did. We're at the end. He says, "Not only am I uh, 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 a member, I'm the I'm the president. I'm also a member." He's got the big stilts. We had Frank Frank Smiley on these the big, huge stilts, swimming in a pool with the stilts dragging behind him. You know, <laughs> for the audience, there's yeah. two Smiley brothers, Frank, who works on Conan as a he worked talent on, He was executive. on our show as an assist, as a uh, you know an assistant. And he's a very small guy. And his brother Stu Smiley was yeah. the executive producer on Everybody Loves Raymond. If you sack them up, they could run under a table without <laughs> knocking their hat off. <laughs> But we would sit around, like, we'd come up with a bit like that, like the Still Club for Men, or another one I wanted to do called the, the Humor Knots, which was about, you know, remember they had, they built that thing in Arizona, it was a big biosphere? Yes. So I had these guys, the Humor Knots, we were looking for the next, next generation of humor. And we went in space in a space capsule to look for, you know, so we all played part, we got those Fireball XL5, remember the Fireball XL5, the uh, marionettes in the... Uh, Spaceship crashing, and so we all sat around and we pretended we were comics on a mission to find the next kind of humor, the humor knots, and we would we would ad lib over these uh, marionettes and that the humor knots thing. Drake would always do it. Oh my balls! <laughs> As the old scientist, you know. But we had. No, I would just collect the material. Well, at some point in the day, I would collect everybody's material. So you're the arbiter. So you get everybody's material, then you go through it and you edit it and decide what jokes are out and aren't going to Dennis. Right. You you edit. You look and say, "Here's a joke that's a. This joke needs an extra little something. Maybe you you know, punch it up a little bit, or maybe you say this this is perfect. You just collect everybody's stuff together, 
So you have all the material that's submitted to you. Right. When it gets to Dennis, what percentage as a head writer have you edited out before it gets to Dennis? I didn't take out much. I, you know, most of the stuff, the guys were pretty good writers. So I didn't take out a lot of stuff. There were some things I thought, clearly Dennis is not going to go for this. Uh, I would take it out. But most of the stuff was fairly good, and we needed a lot of stuff. So you had to have a pretty good stack of material to go through every day. When you're generating that much monologue material and, and desk, desk pieces for a five-day-a-week show, you've got a lot of material to go through. So some of the stuff you might take out and save it for later in the week when you, you have a backlog for stuff when you really run dry, if you run dry. So you've got to keep things uh, for the future. But for that day, I would go maybe take 20% of the stuff might get out get thrown out okay so 20 percent gets thrown out so now you got your stuff that you're submitting to dennis i right. imagine you sit in a room with him and he reads it over we would go down on the stage actually he liked to go down on the stage did he like just you and him with him and the writers not there or some people don't like the writers watching no the writers came down and dennis would sit on a chair uh, up on the set and had a like a a robe on to stay warm down on the down on the uh what do you call the stage but the director would be there and the crew and he would say that, and you have a big stack of the stuff to read. I called them, I started calling them map sessions because what he would do is he would sit with all the stuff in the stack and he would read it. And if he didn't like, if he liked the joke, he would go, ah, and put it to the side. And if he didn't like the joke, he would go, ah, and put it over there. <laughs> so I call them map sessions, you know, let's go down for the map session. And uh, we would all go down and watch him go through the thing and go, ah, map. Yeah, map, throwing them in and out and see who's got jokes got in or out. And at the end of the map session, you'd have the jokes Dennis liked, and you might have enough to cover the day or you might not. Might have to go back and write more. On an average day, right? you give him all the jokes, and he's got the eh, eh, yep. left or right. <laughs> so in your opinion, on an average day, what percentage of those jokes got into the show? I would think something like 60. Well, that's that's a lot. pretty good. Yeah, it is. We always had good, uh, always had plenty of material. You know, we were, we were happy with a lot of the material. So, uh, and he was happy with a lot of material. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. You know, sometimes the head writer takes a joke of yours out, doesn't show it to the host, and you're like, right. you know, damn it, if I could just get that joke to the host. Yeah, of course. But if you do that, then you undermine your relationship with the head writer. Right, you're being In pushy. In your time at Dennis Miller Live, or the syndicated show, 
Did any writer ever go behind you and hand the joke to Dennis? Said, hey, Kevin didn't like this joke, but I think you'll like this joke. I don't think so. I can't remember that. <laughs> but uh, that does happen. It happens more. It happened more when I was in sitcoms that people would push for something, you know, unreasonably and annoy the, uh, the head writer. But not on Dennis's show. The, uh, the guys seem to be pretty good about staying in their lane, not running around behind me, uh, trying to really push for some joke that they thought for certain that if Dennis could just read it or Dennis would read it to the public, the public would go insane and their tear, their career would take off. If, if they could just hear this joke, they would know. I'm the Woody Allen of this group. <laughs> and pretty soon I can start fucking young people. Um, people say there's always that one person on the writing staff right. who you don't know why they're there. They don't <laughs> seem to be able to write anything good. But as Greg Garcia once told me, at like two o'clock in the morning, they'll jump on the table, pour water on themselves, or they'll do something to, to right. lighten the mood. Right. And they'll get people in a better mood, even though they don't deliver any material. Do right. you have people like that on your staffs? Um, <laughs> Jim Vallely here. Jimmy was Jimmy was always entertaining. Well, you know, there's a great value to a guy who's entertaining to a big group of people who are sitting basically on a lifeboat, and you're surrounded by sharks and sinking, and you like a guy who could tell you a joke. So Jimmy was always lightened the mood, but he's always a guy who he put in so much material. He was never the guy who was entertaining without being helpful. But I was on shows where there were people who thought, well, how, how the hell is this person here? They, they correct spelling. They, they point out missing apostrophes. They, <laughs> you know, they, deliver, they deliver what they think is invaluable uh, spelling and syntactical advice. But, but I was on one show where there were two women there who I didn't know what they were doing there at all. I couldn't understand at all. They were sent off to write a scene. And they came back with this scene with the, you know, the characters from the show were the characters from the show. And they had a scene between a couple of the characters. And they came back. And we sat around. The guys uh, sat around and read this scene. And we literally were dumbfounded. It was like something. It was almost. It was like absurdist. I said, this. I don't know how they got to a, a scene together with absolutely no meaning. Couldn't tell what people were saying to each other. Couldn't tell what the characters meant to each other. I said, it's as if they took a dictionary, drilled a hole in the bottom of it, and drained all the meaning out of all the words and language. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And they were just on staff. And What'd I, you say to them? Nothing. You can't say anything. You can't say, you know, this is absurdist humor. Did you did you blow Howard Harold Pinter or what? What's going on with this thing? I think there's very few geniuses who are performing stand-up comedy today. Now, really? not ones who passed away. Music. If I asked you to name, I'm sure you'll make a joke here. But if I asked you to name all the geniuses in music, you probably could name 25 without anything. But if I asked you to name all the geniuses in comedy right. who are doing comedy now. It'd be hard pressed to maybe mention five. And I feel like I'm guilty because I haven't always put Dennis Miller in that category. But when I think back to the, the show, especially Dennis Miller Live, mm -hmm. there's one thing about a guy like Leno delivering the jokes that your staff right. does. But there's one thing where a staff writes to the point of view of an artist and the right. way he delivers his jokes and the way his brain works and thinks out humor. Right. And when I think about the old Dennis Miller live show, to me, 
I feel like I have to put Dennis Miller in a category of brilliance and genius. Now, in terms of socially and his, and his relationship skills with other comics right. and other people, that's a separate issue. But I'm talking about just the pure writing skill of how it comes out of his brain right. and goes on the page or how he delivers what the writers write. He had I, a specific point of view and he, he had a good voice for it, actually. And he had a, a facility with language that was obvious, you know. And so I think his point of view and his language really was a solid character and, it, and, and dovetailed with mine very closely. So I found it easy to write for him. And I think he found the stuff that I wrote easy to deliver in his voice and enjoyed it for that. Not, not so with a lot of other guys. They have a, they're funny and they're uh, accomplished, but they don't have a, the solid crystal sort of point of view you can get into. So I like writing for Dennis that way. And uh, I would put him in that category. As far as this, you know, the, 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 the distance between his comedic skills and his, and his social skills, that's also something a lot of geniuses, I think a lot of what you would call the geniuses, have those, they have those problems, you know. They're genius painters, genius artists, genius poets, writers. But they have a social problem. They have some kind of dysfunction with people and relationship problems. So I think that may be a function of just being smart, you know. Knowing what you know now, and let's say you were excited about writing now. Right. And you had the choice to write for a Jay Leno who's always going to be his social skills and the way he is with you. Right. He's always going to be extra effusive, extra kind, sit with you, talk with you, tell you great job, unbelievable, I love this versus a Dennis Miller who is a different kind of character, more like Letterman in the sense that not really, doesn't really tell you you're doing a great job all the time <laughs> or doesn't do things like that, right. doesn't show you the love, but puts out a product that's in another stratosphere. Even Leno, if he were sitting here, would say that Dennis's material is a way different, edgy, unique, authentic take versus his right. straight stand-up right down the middle, great stand-up, but right. in that way. Which would you choose? Would you choose working with the guy who's no drama, but the comedy isn't pushing the envelope, or would you choose the guy who comedy pushes the envelope, but then they know push you, you personally? I know what you're saying. Well, it's uh, it's funny because it's the same question when it came down to working for Jay or Dennis and the question of working on sitcoms, because a lot of the sitcoms did not make you feel like you were working on a great artistic project or a particularly groundbreaking or interesting characters or so so but there was a lot more money there <laughs> so i think it comes down to the money <laughs> always comes down to the money you're going to play in a really nice bar for a hundred bucks or a crappy bar for 125 all right so i'll take the crappy bar for 125 i know you took certain sitcoms for the money but let's do this Let's pretend the money's the same. Mm -hmm. Do you rather work with the guy who is doing great comedy but more mainstream and it's always no drama or the person who's doing something completely outside the box well, but I'll, there's drama? I will flatter myself and say that I would rather work on the more artistically interesting show and more uh, aggressively 
comedic show. Despite the despite trials the, and tribulations. Yeah, despite that. Because I have never worked with anybody that's so bad you can't get along with them at some, you know, most of the time. Dennis wasn't hard to get along with when we were friends. It wasn't, wasn't a problem. And Jay, I love. He's a great friend. So I, didn't, I haven't had that to make that. But given the, oppor- given the opportunity, I think you want to work on the more challenging show, the one that has more cachet, the one that, would, that you could walk around town and say, somebody says to you, what shows do you work on? You want to say, I wrote uh, Seinfeld. I wrote Fleabag. You want to say that. Yeah, sometimes you don't want to say what show you were on. But <laughs> I never really disavowed writing on any shows. None of them were that bad. But some of them were just not challenging or, or flattering to have been on, you know? I thought the thing that always might have been difficult for you in stand-up where the needle didn't always move exactly where you wanted it to is because you're that guy who just plants his feet and delivers the jokes. In other words, you could be blind and hear your jokes and, and think they're funny, but sometimes people look at certain personalities in comedy and they want right. them to be a certain way, and you were more like Herb from accounting, right. delivering tremendously clever jokes. You know, you had that <laughs> presence about you. That's nice. Well, I will say, I think that audiences uh, enjoyed my act much better if they were blind. You're right about that. <laughs> <laughs> You're right about that. Yeah, so I always felt like when I went to see you, and I'd see you a lot in the back of the right, room, I'd right. be like, God, this guy is so clever, so amazing. But I think sometimes in that time in the 80s, if I right. could say something that you might disagree with, okay. that was a time when your personality and your character had to be overblown and you were just a regular guy who was somebody's brother or their father or well i used to think about that at the time the like with jay i watched jay go from a comic a well-known uh comic in the comedic circles to the celebrity status he got you know over the course of getting the tonight show and the co-host and all that stuff and i realized he was a three-dimensional person and he presented three-dimensional kind of material. And so it took a while for the audience to catch on to him like it does if you're just walking around, if you're meeting people, normal people take a little while to sink in. But a two-dimensional person who's kind of cartoonish latches onto your head faster. That's why Drew Carey always had the, the suit with the big glasses and he became a cartoon that you could always recognize. And people who were, like you were saying, overblown characters are basically uh, two-dimensional and you can really latch onto them. So those people become, they, they, I think they get traction faster and they're memorable. Especially during that period of time where it was right. a critical time for you. Right. It was memorable. So I did not pay attention to, you know, I, I, we were talking about it with Jimmy, uh, who we'll talk to in a little bit. I was talking about it with him yesterday that uh, we're watching politicians try and form, you know, try and get traction with the public. They don't know a lot of the things that you eventually learn when you're a performer in stand-up how to make your look complement your material and make your voice complement your material. Like I think Jay Chappelle, for instance, his voice and his presentation is so of a piece. It's just fantastic, so strong. Not only is material genius material, but Absolutely. the way he talks, the way he looks, the way he moves are all part of a piece. So uh, I did not do that. I didn't make sure, like, for instance, my hair when I was bald then, which I am now, I had to. I was still growing my hair longer a little bit to try and pretend I had some of it. It didn't go along with my material, and my, my dress didn't really go along with my material. I should have worn a suit and, you know, shaved my head like I do now and been more 
precise with the, I like my material to be precise and I should have looked precise and I should have worked on my voice more you know but I didn't think about those things because I wasn't thinking in terms of I wasn't a showman I wasn't a president I didn't want to be a showman I just thought I'm just me talking I wanted that to be the thing that people liked not a crafted look and presentation so I think you're right, uh, truly, that three-dimensional, actual, fully-formed people are less memorable on the first time you meet them than a cartoon who comes out and blows up. You know, I got my funny glasses on, I got my funny suit, I'm screaming. That sticks into a person's head, you know, audience member's head. And so they, I think they can get traction faster. And that, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Traction. All these people today on Facebook and Twitter trying to... Instagram, it's all about trying to get traction with an audience and getting some kind of recognition and be memorable. So some people come out with memorable material and other people come out with a firecracker in their ass. <laughs> As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out! All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.